Hey, everybody. How you doing? This is Aaron Comus of The Spin Doctors, and you're listening to my weekly mixtape with Brian Colburn. We had a great time picking up a bunch of Spin Doctors songs, and I hope you enjoy it. Have a great one. Welcome to My Weekly Mixtape, a podcast that takes the classic mixtape approach to building a modern playlist. I'm your host, Brian Colburn. Joining me tonight as guest curator is the drummer of a band that I've been a fan of since first hearing the opening drum fill that slides in under the lead riff to Jimmy Olsen's blues, and that's the one and only Aaron Comus of The Spin Doctors. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me on My Weekly Mixtape. Hey, thanks for having me, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. Hope you could say the same. Yes, sir. Well, I'd like to start by asking you the same question I ask all of my first-time guests. Aaron, what does the word mixtape mean to you? Mixtape? Well, I mean, it reminds me of back in the day when we had cassettes, and we would make mixtapes and just put our favorite songs on them. I certainly did a lot of those back in the day. And then, of course, we started doing them on our computers and iTunes. And now I can't even figure out how to work the damn thing anymore. It's so confusing. But uh, yeah, that, it was those were fun, and I know sometimes people would make tapes for their friends or their girlfriends, you know. And uh, there's a lot of a lot of memories and meanings and songs for people. So uh, mixtapes are always sort of a cool way to capture that, you know. Well, what we're hoping to do tonight is capture the ultimate Spin Doctors mixtape, and Aaron and I are going to do that tonight by using the old cassette deck approach. Aaron, as my special guest, will begin side A with his first song choice, and then I'll add a song that I feel best follows up that choice. We'll then flip-flop choosing songs until we've mapped out 10 songs for side A. Wow. We'll then give that mixtape a proverbial flip, and we'll map out side B, only this time I'll kick the side off with Aaron choosing second. Our overall goal for this episode is to craft the best Spin Doctors mixtape possible through only 20 songs. At the end of the show, you could take our conversation to the next level by visiting the episode page at myweeklymixtape.com, where you can give our final mixtape a listen via the embedded playlist. If you like what you're hearing on the show, you can help me out by either telling a friend about the show, leaving the show a five-star review wherever you're tuning in, or by becoming a Patreon mixtaper at patreon.com forward slash myweeklymixtape. So Aaron, I'm officially pressing the record button on our mixtape and the floor is yours. Why don't you dive into the song you're going to choose to kick off side A? Wow. Okay. You're putting the pressure on. You know what? If I got to start off a Spin Doctors mixtape, I'm going to go back early on, back to our first release, which was, uh, well, actually our first release was a, was a record called Up for Grabs Live at the Wetlands. And then we, re- we re-released a longer version of that called Homebelly Groove. So I don't know if this song was on both, or I know it's on Homebelly Groove. And I'm going to start with a song called Yo Baby, which is one of a very early Spin Doctors song um, that we played regularly. It's sort of just a classic, old school, early Spin Doctors funk song with killer, sort of funny, Chris Barron lyrics. Some songs we would, various members or individuals would write a song and bring them in. Other songs, sometimes we would just make up on the stage and Chris might have a set of lyrics. And if I recall correctly, Yo Baby was one of those. So that's going to be the first song on the playlist, Yo Baby. Well, my question for you is that song was on the Home Belly Groove live release. Why was there never a studio version? Because that's a fantastic, upbeat song that feels like it would really fit in with the studio catalog. 
Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I mean, I know we talked about putting it on records. Um, it just never, you know, we've always had so much material. And especially like early on when we first, those first two years of a band, we wrote so many songs, such a big repertoire. So when it came time to making Pocket Full of Kryptonite, you know, it was, it was kind of difficult to hone it down to the 11 songs we wanted to use. And then moving on to Turn It Upside Down, we had written some new songs and we took some old ones. I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure why we never put Yo Baby on a record, you know? Maybe we still will someday. Who knows? All right. But, you know, it's it's a great version. Some songs are just sort of meant to be. I mean, it's such a classic version with a live, live one. And I, I probably just felt like, you know, that's good enough. Well, that actually makes my follow-up for track two pretty easy because I don't ever come into an episode saying, I'm putting this song here and this song here because you never know what the other person's going to choose. So you kind of have no idea of how it's going to unfold. But for me, if you chose any spin doctor song, other than the song that I had in mind for track two, I needed to put this song at track two. Cause to me, when I've seen the band live, I've seen you perform this in the number two slot before. And it's just the perfect second song of the night to get people up and moving. And it is the first song on up for grabs live, but I'm actually going to go with the studio version that kicks off 1994's Turn It Upside Down. And I'm going to go with Big Fat Funky Booty. Just oh, I love a it. silly, fun, exciting song that gets you shaken and gets you moving. And that's a song that, when I look back, I was actually shocked didn't make Pocket Full of Kryptonite. But I'm yeah. so glad that it was represented in studio form on the follow-up. Yeah, that's cool. And, and again... It's really sort of in the same family as Yo Baby. Those are both really early, early Spin Doctor songs and, you know, really representing the funk side of the band hard. So good choice. So we're starting off, we're starting off right with the funk here. All right. And I'm throwing it back to you now to follow up with track three. Wow. Okay. Let me think about this for a minute. All right. You know what I'm going to do? I think I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to take something off of the um, Pocket Full of Kryptonite record. I think I'm going to go with Refrigerator Car. Nice. So to go, go into that rock side of things a bit, you know? Do you feel that there was a challenge trying to balance the rock and the funk side of the band? Because at the time you had different bands out there like the Red Hot Chili Peppers that leaned very heavy into the funk. You had groups yeah. like Fishbone that kind of took the funk and almost lent like a ska and a punk vibe to it. And you guys were a little bit more of a, I don't want to say jam band, but there was that jam band element with funk music how did you kind of find that balance across your live shows and on albums you know we never really thought about it too much to be honest i mean we we never really had sat around and said okay we're gonna be a funk band or a rock band or a jam band we we really just took a very organic approach and i think being that we all shared a lot of similar influences but we all brought different things to the table with the playing and the writing so we ended up with a sort of a cool, diverse catalog of material, but it all kind of worked together, you know, but in, in like making a set list or putting an album together, like for instance, Pocket Full of Kryptonite, I mean, we certainly thought about, okay, how can we represent the band on this debut record and also, you know, pick songs that float well together, you know, from start to finish. And we, so we definitely put a lot of thought into it and we really wanted to represent different sides of us. Obviously we had... We used to always call like the, we used to have part of our set what we call the white bread hits. And those were like songs like Funky Booty and Two Princes and Little Miss and Jimmy Olsen. 
And then we had sort of the more of the, more of the rock stuff, like the song, like Refrigerator Car, Shinbone Alley. And then we had more of the sort of psychedelic ballads, like 40 or 50. And, and um, so we just sort of tried to put those together in a way that, that worked, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. But when coming up with material, we never really, we didn't put a lot of thought into it. It was sort of, it was a natural thing, you know? Completely understand. And from there, I'm going to leapfrog into the next decade. And I want to go to 2005 for my next pick. And I'm going to go with the title track from the band's first album, which at that point had been in six years since 1999's Here Comes the Bride. 2005's Nice Talking to Me was the Spin Doctors' return to form after what was a kind of tumultuous time for the band with Chris dealing with losing his vocal cords with the paralysis and some Mm -hmm. members coming in and out and then the band reforming. To me, this felt like a rebirth of the band. This album came out the year I got married and I remember going to Vintage Vinyl in Fords, New Jersey the day this album came out. I needed to get my hands on a copy and hear the first new Spin Doctors music in six years and the opening track, the opening riff to Nice Talking to Me just took me right back it's a pocket full of kryptonite and felt like the band never missed a beat. And to me is a signature song from the group. So I'm going to follow it up with the title track. Nice talking to me. And I'd be curious, did things come together organically when putting that album together? Did you feel there was a pressure to live up to whatever the past was, or were you trying to move forward? Because it was kind of a strange period for the band leading up to the album's release. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was sort of the beginning of, the band getting back together after, after, you know, Eric leaving for a while and then Chris having a couple different formations of the band and, you know, Chris losing his voice. And then we got back together for the Wetlands reunion, you know, when they closed. Yeah. Just a couple of days before 9-11. So after that, we sort of started to like just put our foot back in the water again. We did a few gigs, and got busier and busier, which led up to that nice talking to me record. So I don't think we really felt a lot of pressure. We were trying to have a good time. We wanted to come up with a really good batch of material. And like we always do, we did a series of writing sessions, different members, different people getting together until we came up with the songs we felt were strong enough. And then we hooked up with a great producer, Matt Wallace, who was really did a great job. And he, um, he did something we had never done before. We did a, a couple of weeks of pre-production with, we had done pre-production, but his version of pre-production was to, before we got on our instruments, just to get on a couch with acoustic guitars and flush out the arrangements and really make sure we had a really strong song before we actually got on our instruments. Because sometimes when you're working on songs and everybody's loud or whatever, you know, sometimes that works really well, but other times you might not be able to get really deep into what the song is. So it was a really cool way to work. And that's how we did it with this record. So once we've got everything arranged to what we felt like, okay, this song is, we're going to get it, we move over to our instruments and working out there. But nice talking to me is a great example of that because you may not know this unless you dug way deep into like our, the archives and got like vintage bootlegs of the band. We had a version of Nice Talking to Me going way back to the early days. And we didn't play it a lot, but it was, and it was basically just that riff. It didn't have the whole core, the whole hey, hey, honey, honey chorus part yet. It was just that riffs and the Nice Talking to Me thing. And it, was, it never really kind of felt like a complete song which is probably why it fell by the wayside. But when we were writing for the new record, we were like, you know, that, that thing really has a vibe. It's a classic Spin Doctors vibe. It's just a great guitar riff. And um, the lyric is cool. Let's see if we can like, you know, finish this song. 
And so that's what we did, you know, in pre-production, we sat there and like finished it off and came up with that whole chorus idea. And it, it turned out to be a great song. I really liked that record. And, you know, it, you know, it wasn't a very successful record per se. The record label went bust like a week after we put it out, sadly. But cool thing about it for me is that a good amount of those songs on that record, we play to this day pretty regularly live, you know, nice talking to me to be one of them. So I'm going to continue on this for my song now. One of my other favorite songs from that record that we also play live a lot that I love is Sugar. Nice. So I'd like that the next song. It's another great yeah. song. That album to me is probably the band's most underrated, I think, across the whole catalog because I don't want to mention any other song titles because there may or may not be some other ones coming up in our discussion. But to sure. me, this album had a renewed energy about it. It felt like the boys are back, so to yeah. speak. And it felt like you didn't miss a beat, no pun intended. And the music all felt very fresh and very modern in 2005, even though it still held on to that 90s sound that has kind of been across the entire Spin Doctor's career. Yeah, I agree. I do want to touch back, though. You had glossed over something as you were talking before, and it's something that to me I think is a very pivotal part of the band's history. And that was September 7th of 2001, when you reunited at the wetlands for the first time, having played there since 1994, the week before the wetlands shut its doors. I know from a lot of people writing online and through spin doctor lore, that that is kind of a significant show for the band. Would you feel that that was kind of a revival for the next 20 plus years of the spin doctors that night? hundred percent. I mean, you got to remember, we hadn't played the four of us together since 1994 when Eric left the band. And then after we, you know, we, we went on and then it had been a couple of years since any form of spin doctors existed when Chris lost his voice, you know, right around the time of here comes the bride came out. Mm -hmm. So it was definitely the moment it was, a, it was just a nice moment because, you know, a lot of us hadn't spoken to each other in a while. The vibe wasn't very good. And I got a call from, uh, I think it was from, um, pretty sure it was Pete Shapiro because he owned the wetlands at the time. He called me up one day out of the blue. He was like, hey man, you know, we're, we're closing the wetlands. We're calling some of our favorite bands that played there over the years to finish it out. We'd love to get the original Spin Doctors. So that was really, you know, who knows what would have happened if that call wouldn't have came. I mean, my, my guess is we probably would have gotten done something eventually, but it was really, so I called everybody. You know, I hadn't talked to Eric and probably five years. I hadn't spoken to Mark in a couple of years. You know, me and Chris spoke all the time. So I called those guys and everybody was cool. And it just felt right because we had so many memories and so many great gigs of the wetlands. Everybody agreed to do it. And we had a rehearsal like the day before. And it was just like, you know, I mean, it was like riding a bike, you know, we just play, it was just like, boom, you know, everything felt great. We had a great gig, packed house. And, you know, it's not like we walk off the stage that night and, just, and we're like, hey, let's get together tomorrow. But it opened that door. You know? And pretty short after that, you know, we got some offers for some gigs and we were like, you know what? Yeah, let's go out and see how it goes. You know? So, yeah, there's no question that night was was the sort of the new beginning of the next you know, 20 years or so. Excellent. Well, I am going to now choose my first song from Pocket Full of Kryptonite for track six on side A. And this is a song that is very important to me because I have been covering this song when I play live for the better part of 
the last 25, 30 years myself because the vocal delivery in this song is something that I just gravitate to. And it is the song that introduced me and millions of others to the Spin Doctors and it's Little Miss Can't Be Wrong. I love the groove to the song. I love Chris's delivery of the vocals. And when you really dive into the lyrics, it's pulling no punches in this song. And there's something about it that holds up. It still feels fresh and modern. God, 30 plus years later. And to me, it's a signature song for the band. I know it's one of the big radio hits, so it's an obvious pick. But this song to me never got overplayed because every time I hear it, it always puts a smile on my face. Well, that's great. Well, I mean, that's the song that broke us. So we're all very grateful for it. Yeah, it was a, it was a slog to get any sort of uh, help from Epic Records at the time. You know, I mean, as, as you probably know, it took over a year before that record even got any airplay at all. And it was a, it was a disc jockey in Vermont, a guy named Jim McGuinn on a station called WEQX up in the Vermont and Albany, went down into Albany as well. And he started playing Little Miss on his own and it went to number one on the station. And he wrote a letter to the president of Epic Records, Richard Griffiths, saying that, you know, what are you guys doing? You should get behind this band. It should be a really big band. And that's what started everything for us, that letter. And so then they released Little Miss Campbell on rock radio and we made a video and it got on MTV. And then, you know, that was the beginning of the whole thing. So we're all really grateful for it. And uh, it's a classic sort of rock and roll song, you know, I remember the day Chris called me up one morning, me and Eric were living together on Elizabeth street in New York city. And Chris called me one morning and he was like, Hey man, I got, I got this new song. I like, I want to come over and play it for you. And he came over and he played it for him. And I remember, I remember it was like the first time I thought something like, you know what, this song could maybe do something, you know? And we, we were never really like, that was never our focus to like be like seriously and honestly say our, our goals were always to write original songs and make a living playing them. Of course you want to have success, but we didn't get, we didn't form the band. It wasn't our focus to have radio hits, you know, it just wasn't the way we were thinking. But I remember when I heard that song, it was the first time I was like, you know, this, this is the kind of song that could maybe do something. And, um, and we never, we, we played it. I think that night we had a gig at the Nightingale bar and, you know, we, we never rehearsed it. We just learned it on stage, you know, and Eric and Paul, we were jamming around with it in the apartment. I remember I was playing the piano and Eric was playing guitar. We put that little bridge on, we added that bridge on and we had a gig that night or maybe the night later. And Eric just showed Mark the chorus. He's like, Hey man, you know, just. G, D, C, the bridge is going to be flat. And that was it, you know, and we just played it and it just developed over time. And that, that Chuck Berry hook that Eric plays on the guitar, that never even happened until we went to the studio to record the record. Really? It was just always the dun and 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 that part is all we, all it was for a long time. And when we recorded the song, we recorded it like that. And then during overdubs, Eric added that Chuck Berry thing, you know? So it's a really cool example of like a big moment happening in the studio. And uh, anyway, all right, so let's see. So, so I'm, you know where I'm going to go from there? I'm, gonna actually, I'm actually going to take another song off Pocket Full of Kryptonite. Um, and this, this is a song that was one of the things that got me really into the band. When we first started, you know, I'd, I had moved to New York in 1988 and I was, we were all going to the new school, me and Chris and Eric. And Eric and Chris had already met up. And so they had already kind of put the idea together to form this band and they didn't have a bass player or a drummer. So I'm practicing behind a closed door. There's a knock on the door and I open the door. It's Eric. He's like, Hey man, you sound good. I'm putting a band together. You want to be in it? 
you know? And I was like, okay, I'll check it out. Yeah. And so we got together and it was cool. But a couple months into it, we started, you know, remember we had a, we had a writing set. We were doing some demos at the new school on our little four track. And we were writing some stuff and I had this piece of music and I brought it in. I showed it to the guys like, Hey, I got this cool piece of music. You know, Chris, if you want to, what do you guys think? Maybe you want to write some lyrics to it. And Chris just sat then and wrote those lyrics. And that was what became 40 or 50. And that was like the moment for me where I was like, okay, this is, this is really cool. Cause not only this is an opportunity to be, everybody wants to have, when you're in a group, it to be a, a good creative experience for them, you know? So for me, besides being a drummer, I'm also, so I also like to compose music. So it was that moment where I was like, oh man, this is, this might be something cool to like stick around with for a while and see how it goes. So 40 or 50, really cool song. Uh, I love the version we did on the, on the record. So let's, let's go with that one next. It's a fantastic track. And I think now if we're looking at the pocket full of kryptonite track listing, we've covered tracks three, four, and five with Little Miss, 40 or 50, and Refrigerator Car. So now I'm going to jump a little bit later into the 90s, and I'm going to go with one. I'm a massive fanatic of cover songs. I just love when I hear a band take a song that's been already established and put their spin on it. And another thing that I always am excited about is when bands from different genres and different musical mindsets come together and create something that might be seen as different or wow you have this artist from this genre and this artist collaborating this doesn't make sense but for some reason it works and this was a song you guys did for a soundtrack and it was also a bonus track on you've got to believe in something and it's your cover of That's the Way I Like It with Biz Marquee, hip hop uh, legend. Yeah. This song is so much fun. I know it was for a Warner Brothers Looney Tunes movie, but when you listen to this version, it sounds like you guys are literally throwing a party in the studio. And it's like your live show on stage is coming through the speakers in this cover. And I'd love to know what was it like? working with a hip hop legend because at the time hip hop and rock were only getting together in terms of heavier music like anthrax and public enemy doing bring the noise and the judgment night soundtrack. This was hip hop coming together with party rock and funk rock in a way that had never been done up till that point. Yeah. Um, you know, we, so I think, trying to remember so our manager david sonover was also managing bismarck at the time so and i forget like i think i guess i got asked by you know space jam to do a, a song for the soundtrack i can't remember if they specifically asked for that song but i remember we had a session at acme studios up in my Maranac with bismarck we recorded two songs that day we did that's the way and we also did a version of um steve miller song um uh, what's one of his big hits? Uh, not fly like an eagle. Um, the Joker. We did the Joker. Really? Those were kid. But that didn't come out that well. It went, and we never, we never finished it. Oh, the idea of it was great because we always got a lot of comparisons to Steve Miller, you know, which I can actually see. I understand that. But uh, we we didn't finish it. But we did finish. That's the way I like it. And it was a really fun session. First of all, I remember. The thing that really blew my mind up, Biz Marquis, is he was a, like a music encyclopedia. I mean, this dude knew, and, and particularly with rock music, he knew every detail, songs, who wrote them, where they were recorded, who played all of them. It was wild. 
So he, he really knew his stuff, man. Really nice guy. And I remember like the first time I ever heard that song is, uh, wait, what is it? Uh, friend, just a wait, friend. Just, just a friend. A friend. I, I, when I first heard it, I was like, what? I couldn't figure it out. I was like, what is this? You know? But then I grew, now I grew to love it. I mean, it's like, it's awesome. You know, but the first time I heard it, I was like, what the fuck is this? You know? <laughs> but he was great, man. He was a lot of fun to work with. He was so cool. And we cut that song. We were, we were, that was kind of the tail end of when we were making the, you gotta believe in something record. So we were working with producer Danny Korchmar, who was great. And Danny actually played some guitar on that song. You know, everybody, if you don't know who Danny Korchmar is, he's, you know, legendary session guitar player. He played on Tapestry. You know, he played on a lot of James Taylor. He was part of that scene in like the seventies that played on everything out in like in uh, LA. And he also had a massive success producing the, that big, uh, Don Henley record, among other things. And he was great. And uh, besides being a great producer, he's a great guitar player. So I remember that day, you know, he, and he didn't play guitar on the Spin Doctors record, but I remember this was like the end of the whole thing. I just, I'll never forget. He was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm playing guitar on this. And he played, <laughs> he played some great guitar on it. And we, we kind of did that. We made like a loop, a drum loop, backwards sort of drum loop. So it was sort of a different kind of thing. And it was cool, you know, and it, it actually... It was on this, you know, this, that soundtrack, which was massive. And it was back in the days when soundtracks were such a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously that movie was huge. So that, that soundtrack sold a lot of copies and that, that song actually was a hit in, in like Japan at the version, you know, but anyway, it was a fun experience you know, for sure. So let's see, you know, maybe, maybe since we're on that era, that period, maybe I'll play a song. Let's play, let's play one of my favorite songs off that record was the title track, You Gotta Believe in Something. Yes. And the great Bernie Worrell played uh, keyboards on that song. We had him come in the studio and play keyboards on a few songs, that being one of them. You know, that was a, that was a fun period. I mean, you know, it was, it was, Eric wasn't in the band at that time. It was shortly after Eric left the band and we, we got Anthony Kreisel on board. And, you know, we had a good time making that record. We, we all were in New York City. We were getting together every day, having writing sessions at my, my, uh, part, I had, a, I had a studio down on 12th street at the time and we would get together and write and, you know, it was fun. We had a really good time making that record. I think it was a good record. Sadly, it didn't really do much. It was sort of coming off the massive success of the first two records and, and it was considered a major bomb, you know, at the, but, uh, but I, I like the record and, uh, I think one of my favorite songs on it is this one. You gotta believe in something. It's a great tune. I love the opening to it. It almost gives you that old time feel where the album cover makes sense because it almost feels like you're watching a 1920s movie. The yeah. film is spinning and then this, the music starts. It was a really interesting kind of rebirth. And I know there's a dynamic difference with Anthony on board instead of Eric, but musically yeah. the core of you, Chris and Mark held that foundation together. And to be honest, for most fans, if they were just opening the CD and putting it in, they might not have known that there was a change because at that point, while there was internet, it wasn't like the social media driven land we live in now. Yeah. You kind of found music in the record stores and kind of until you read the liner notes, realized, oh my God, there's been a, a lineup change. But musically, I still think the core was there and I think it, it shines on the whole album. Yeah, it's a strong record. I like it. I mean, I think that with our band, it's, you know, look, I mean, we're, we're certainly one of those bands where everybody has contributed a lot to the sound of the spin knockers. And, you know, we've gone through periods where like, you know, right now, you know, Jack Daly on the bass, you know, Mark's on the band, 
and Jack's phenomenal. And uh, I'll always have a deep respect and love for what the four of us did, you know, together, sort of the classic lineup. But, you know, when you have different members or different lineups, you're always going to make it as good as you can. I think uh, I love what we're doing right now with Jack. And I, I think this record with Anthony was an excellent record. Well, closing out side A, I get one chance to close out something. And for me, I feel like I want to close out a side of Spin Doctors with a studio song that I think truly represents the live Spin Doctors experience only done in the studio. And for me, the first song that comes to mind, you mentioned it earlier in the night, was Shinbone Alley, Hard to Exist. I mean, that song, because when the Spin Doctors perform live, you guys open up the songs and let them breathe and you jam them out a little bit. And on the album, the songs are more kind of in their concise, I don't want to say radio ready format, but they're cut down to the three, four, five minute versions, but not this one. This one jams and it goes on and it's just the Spin Doctors live, but in the studio. And I'd like to know, did the label give push? Because a 10-minute song in the 90s was not something that happened very often. The labels were pushing three minutes, three minutes, even the alternative bands. They were trying to keep it short and sweet for radio play. Did you guys have to fight for that song in any way? Or was that something that... Well, one of the things we were lucky about is that the label wasn't paying any attention to us whatsoever. We had this (laughs) label deal. But they didn't really care about us. You know what I mean? Like, so they weren't really thinking of us, I think, as this band that was going to, like, be their big hit for next year. I think they thought, okay, this is a cool band. Maybe this is a thing we'll build up over a few records. But, you know, everybody who saw us or anybody that came, that wanted to sign us and knew what we were about, if you came and saw our show, you know, you saw that we had these sort of shorter, what I used to, we called the white bread hits, you know, like Little Miss and Jimmy and Two Princes and Booty. But... You came and saw the Spin Doctors. You heard songs like Shimon Alley and Hard to Exist and Freeway of the Plane and songs where we stretched out for a long time. That was a big part of what we did. And so it was important to us to represent that on the record. And we got no pushback at all. And in fact, the guy that produced, we had two different producers. Uh, the first producer we used was Frank Aversa. Because originally we were going to, originally we were going to put out an EP. So that's another reason, you know, like the idea was let's put out an EP, like a five or six song EP before we put out the record. So we had a studio EP. So we went in the studio at Power Station with Frank Averse and we cut Shimon Hard to Exist, Two Princes. We cut a couple other things, How Could You Want Them? I think we cut a version of Hungry Hamids. But then we decided, you know what, let's put out a live EP. So then we, we went in and did that Wetlands thing. But then we decided let's use from this session, we really loved how Shimon Hard to Exist came out and Two Princes as well. So we decided, okay, we're going to use those three from this and we're going to go in the studio and do the rest of the record, which we did with Peter Denneberg. So anyway, when we were working with Frank Aversa, I remember he was really into this. I remember we were playing a gig at the Lone Star Cafe one day. It was live, I think it was live on W, no, 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 no. This was earlier than that. And he came out with our manager and we played Shimon Alley Hard to Exist. And I remember after the show, they were both like, wow, I loved it. That song was so cool and that whole segue the middle the thing the, you know the drums and bass are doing that and they were like we should cut that you know we were like yeah we, we should definitely cut that <laughs> you know so <laughs> we actually we actually when i think about it we actually got encouraged to do that for the record and um you know again i mean i, I love pocket full of kryptonite you know so much because i think it really 
it just represents the spin doctors so well. I mean, it really represents all the different sides of the band just fully. And uh, so to put something like that on, it was a great fan. And it, and it closes out the record and you're closing side A of our little mixtape. Well, there you have it, mixtapers. Side A of the Ultimate Spin Doctors mixtape, which consists of Yo Baby, the live version, Big Fat Funky Booty, Refrigerator Car, Nice Talking to Me, Sugar, Little Miss Can't Be Wrong, 40 or 50, That's the Way I Like It with Biz Marquee, You Gotta Believe in Something, and Shinbone Alley, Hard to Exist. Head over to MyWeeklyMixtape.com to hear all the songs we've discussed in this mix through the playlist embedded on the episode page. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Now, Aaron, along with the Spin Doctors, one of my other favorite 90s groups was a band that I'm going to assume you're quite familiar with because of the Spinning Traveler shows. And that would be the one and only Blues Traveler. I'd love for you, if you would mind, to talk about the relationship you've had with them over the years and how you guys have remained so tight across the decades. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, you know, Chris grew up with those guys. Yep. They went to Princeton, grew up in Princeton together. So Chris has known them forever. And Blues Traveler is one of these bands that were like all good friends in high school and formed in high school. And then they moved to New York City in the late 80s. And, uh, you know, they encouraged Chris to come. Chris was writing songs and doing like solo sets. And they encouraged Chris to come. They were like, come to New York. You can live with us. You can open up for us. So he would, he would often open up those shows by himself. And then um, when the Spin Doctors formed, it was just, you know, John, all those guys went to the new school as well. You know, Eric and Chris and me were going to the new school. So it just became a real scene. You know, we started, we, we would open for them. We'd be playing at the Nightingale one night. They'd be playing another night. We'd be playing at the Mondo Colony one night. They'd be playing another night. Or like there were two clubs on Bleak the Mondo Colony and the Mondo Perso. They might be playing one. We might be playing the other. It was just a scene where like eventually Blues Travel was always one step ahead of us, but we sort of like, quickly developed our own following and a lot of the, we just had a lot of the same people following both bands around, you know, it was just a, 
I mean, it was a real scene, you know, when you think of like, you know, a scene, a music scene and a scene around bands, the scene in New York City with Blues Traveler and Spin Doctors and, and some other groups as well, you know, was just incredible. And we were all good friends and supported each other. And it was just great. You know, and John was, John actually played our first gig with us. John Popper, the very first gig we ever did. He was sort of, he's always been sort of an honorary member of the band. He's welcome with us anytime. You know, we love, we love it when he plays with us. He's, I think he, he sounds unbelievable when he plays with us. And he always lifts us up in a, in a way that's really cool. Um, so we're like brothers. It was such a special sort of moment. Those early years in New York City with both bands, for sure. Well, before we get into side B, outside of the Spin Doctors, you've also played drums for a ton of other artists, such as Joan Osborne, Rachel Yamagata, Isaac Hayes, and Mark Cohn, just to name a few. If you had to pick three songs that you've recorded outside of the Spin Doctors that truly resonate with you as an artist yourself, what three songs would you pick? Oh, my God. I got to dig through my... uh geography now <laughs> oh man i don't know you know i've done a lot i have done a lot of records with joan osborne rachel yamagata let's see i love i love there's a song called letter red on a rachel yamagata record her record happenstance which i just love beautiful song that would be one of them i think joan osborne there's a song on her second record I that actually co-produced and played drums and bass on called um, Baby Love, which I was great. That's on her, I forget what her second record, Righteous Love, I think is the name of the record. Mm-hmm. Song is called Baby Love, really great. What else? I mean, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of different things. I mean, I've put a bunch of my own records out as well under my own name. So how about, how about let's go with one of my songs on, uh, let's see, I think it was on my record called... Uh, Beautiful mistake, uh, past, present, and future. Awesome. So we'll go for those for three off the top of my head. There's a lot. It's hard to think of them off the top of my head, but those all kind of stand out. Fantastic. I like to come up with those hard questions every now and then, you know, like the the real tough, hard-hitting journalism here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, moving on to side B, I'm going to kick things off. And I mentioned this right when I introduced you. If I'm kicking off a side, I am going back to Pocket Full of Kryptonite. I am a sucker for album opening tracks. And that opening guitar riff of Jimmy Olsen's blues always resonated with me. And there's a reason for that. In 1991, I was a teenager. My parents and I did not see eye to eye musically. They were from a different generation. But there were certain songs that I would play around my parents and they would go, hold up, wait a minute. Turn that one up. Uh. And there were songs that we bonded on. And Jimmy Olsen's Blues was one of them. My father absolutely fell in love with that track. And he always kept saying, put on that Spin Doctors tape. That's something you and I can agree on musically. So for me, that song always holds a special place in my heart. So I am kicking off side B with Jimmy Olsen's Blues. And I want to give a shout out to Patreon playlister Cactus Pete, who also chimed in with that as the song he would kick off his Spin Doctors mix with. Love it. Great song. Classic. Let's see. So where am I going to go from here? I think I'm going to go with a song, and it's another really early song that we used to play. When we first started out, I mentioned these two clubs before, Mondo Connie and Mondo Perso. And so... 
at the time, Mondo Perso hadn't come up yet, but Mondo Connie was a blues bar right off of Bleecker Street. Blues Travel was playing there already, but it was a blues bar. So you basically had to be a blues band. So we basically made a demo of all blues material just really so we could get a gig at this place because they, they paid. It was like on a weeknight, you could get 250 bucks. On a weekend, you could get 500 bucks, which was a ton of really good money. Yeah. So we basically just wrote a whole repertoire of blues songs and made a demo and basically went in there and pretended like we were a blues band. We would play four sets. So the first set would be totally blues, all these original songs. And then we would sort of slowly start to slip in our originals. And by the end of it, we were playing all originals. Turned out they loved us. The club loved us. The people loved us. And it worked out. So years later, we decided to record all these songs. And we put out a record um, called If the River Was Whiskey. Yeah. And we did it live. We did it in my studio live. No overdubs. In fact, we weren't even planning on making it a record. We were just like, let's just record all these songs, you know. And it was just for fun. We had a couple of days off in New York. And when we're finished, we're like, wow, this sound, this really, really came out great. And we just said, okay, let's, let's release it. So one of my favorite songs on that record is called Sweetest Portion. I really love that song. I feel like it's different than anything we've ever done before. So that's going to be my next, that's going to be number two on Sun B. I love it. And I am going to follow that up, I think, with a song that actually is from the same album, as well as... You've got to believe in something. And it's oh. the only, if I'm correct, it's the only Spin Doctor studio track that's had two iterations across the discography. And that's about a train. Yes. And I'd love to know what the reasoning behind redoing it for If the River Was Whiskey was that just because Anthony was on You Gotta Believe in Something and you wanted to get a version with Eric involved? Is it as simple as that? Well, that's part of it. So basically, here's the deal. So that a train is a, Another song that we wrote pretty early on, yeah. and I, that's another song that me and Chris wrote together. I wrote the music to that, and we, you know, it was a, always a really cool song. Uh, it never made one of the earlier records for whatever reason. And then with Anthony, we started playing it. And the truth is, it's a song that I don't like the version we did on You Gotta Believe in Something. I just yeah. simply don't like it. And it's not, it's not necessarily the way Anthony played it. It's because we, we sort of rewrote it. We changed it around. A lot of that was, you know, Danny Korchmar's suggestion. Again, I love Danny. He was trying to do a great job and he said some suggestions and we sort of rewrote the song a bit and uh, it was cool, but I, it always just, it didn't sit with me well. It's just, I was like, I feel like we kind of ruined that one, you know? <laughs> and so when Eric was back in the band, it was just like, you know, it's not a necessarily traditional one, four, five blues song, but it's a very right. blues based song. And so we decided to do it on this record. I'm really glad we did. I feel like we redeemed ourselves and really captured what that song is supposed to be. And, you know, Eric plays it so well, and that's the original way it's supposed to go. And, um, and I, it's funny because it's become recently, in the last couple of years, it's become a real staple at our live show. I mean, it's really gone, like, to the next level recently. We do it not every night, but almost every night lately. It's just become a beast live lately. So it's cool how you see songs, you know, grow over time and change over time. And that a train is an example of a song that's, you know, well over 30 years old. And it's just, it's better than ever. It's really just turned into a beast. All right. Well, following up, we had Jimmy Olsen's blues and a pair of blue songs for side B so far. Yeah. So are we sticking with the blues theme here? Or do you have something else up your sleeve? 
I'm going to take a little detour here and I'm going to go, I want to get something off the, um, here comes the bride record, which is a strange record and a strange time for the band because really it was almost like we didn't have a band because this was after you got to believe in something. Mm -hmm. And we, we decided to part ways with Anthony and we went through a period where we didn't have a guitar play. We didn't really have a band. We weren't even really sure we were going to continue the band. And, um, I remember me and Chris were having lunch. We would go get together and have lunch all the time. And I had just built a studio in my apartment on 12th street. I was feeling really inspired, you know, I had all these instruments laying around and I was doing a lot of writing. And I was like, we, we just decided like, let's just write a bunch of songs together and not think about anything. Not, not a spin doctor's record, not it. Just let's just have some fun and just write a bunch of songs with nothing really in mind. And that's what we did. And we just ended up writing like a shit ton of songs. We were having a blast. It was all very experimental stuff. Like I said, I just got in a studio. So I was just going down there at like three in the morning and like doing the weirdest shit I could come up with. You know, <laughs> running drums through guitar amps and pedals and playing other instruments. And uh, it was a really creative time. So ultimately we decided to make a record out of it. And, you know, Mark was still in the band. Ultimately Mark didn't like the direction we had a falling out and he quit. And, um, Ivan Neville was, had been playing with us during the, you gotta believe in something period. So, you know, he plays on a lot of the record. And then we shortly after that added Iran Tabib as the guitar player. So he played on some of the record, but a lot of it is just me and Chris, you know, and, um, I really liked the record and sadly it didn't see the light of day because Chris lost his, we had a nice deal. We had a deal with universal records. And it's actually looking like we we're going to get a nice little push and go out on tour and Chris lost his voice the week the record came out. It was really pretty disappointing, but I, I really liked the record a lot. And I'm going to, I want to make uh, one of my favorite songs on it is working for the man. Let's go with that. It's a great tune. It's a great album. I have a personal story about that because in 2005, my father lost his voice for an entire year. And the difference between Chris and my father is my father's career did not hinge upon his ability to sing. So when I heard the story about Chris yeah. having paralysis, being a vocalist, knowing just how hard it was for my father to communicate with my wife and I, he couldn't talk above a whisper for a whole year. I can't imagine the toll yeah. it took on you guys in the band. And that album to me was fantastic. And I'm going to follow up working for the man with the title track because that title track to me, I always, when my wife and I were engaged, I always would play it be like, you sure you don't want to come down the aisle to this? I'm like, this is like, <laughs> this is who we are. Like, this is fun and funky. Yeah. And she goes, maybe the reception, not, not the church, but <laughs> I love that. I love the, <laughs> here comes the bride because it's, it's lyrics that everybody knows, but the groove you guys have going in that title track is vintage spin doctors, but it's, got a twist to it. It's, it's a little slower. It's a little more psychedelic. And I just love that about the album. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. Yeah. It was a, it was a, it's a very cool record that sadly not a lot of people have heard. And it's really sort of like, we almost didn't call it the spin doctor. Even when we had our, our deal with universal, we were really close to just making it a new, a new band because it really didn't feel like the spin doctors. I mean, it really wasn't the spin doctors. It was just me and Chris at that point, you know? And so we really considered that. And the record company was on board and then, and ultimately I think they were like, you know what, let's, we're going to have a much better shot if we call the suspenders. I actually wish we wouldn't have called them the spin doctors. I wish it would have been like, it's sort of its own. And because to me, it's, 
it's not really as, I mean, I guess it is a spin doctor's record, you know, but it's, it's very different, but I love it. I mean, it's very close to me because it's such a big, uh, it's such a big part of making it. So, but, uh, cool. Yeah. So let's see, where do we want to go from here? I wish we had our new record out because the new record is incredible. Wait till you hear it. Well, I'm going to get to that when we get through the last 10 songs here, because I have a few yeah, questions cool. about that one. <laughs> so let's see We're okay. Let's, you know what I think I'm going to go. I think I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to the Turner upside down record. And you know, I'm going to, I think I'm going to go with, uh, it was, I remember when we did the record, I think we had, we weren't planning on cutting this song. And we, it was at like the end of the day and somebody just suggested, let's do this song. We did one take of it and it just came out really great. It's one of my favorite songs on the record. It's called Someday All This Will Be A Road. I love the song. I love how it came out. It was just an afterthought kind of to record it. And it, it just kind of has a sort of effortless feel to it. And, um, you know, it's a song we haven't played a whole lot. Uh, every now and then we'll bust it out, but it's one of my favorite songs on that record. I was just going to say, that's one that as many times as I've seen the band, I don't think I've ever seen it live and I, and I would love to see it. Yeah. So I want to ask a question about that. In my mind, as a fan, trying to follow up an album that is in everybody's musical lexicon. I mean, the Spin Doctors, Pocketful of Kryptonite was everywhere. MTV, radio. Was there pressure from the label? Like, you need to have a hit after hit after hit on this one as well? Or did you guys just say... We're going to do what we do, and that's that, because at the end of the day, I feel like Turn It Upside Down is just as strong of an album as Pocketful of Kryptonite. Yeah. I mean, you know, of course there was pressure. I mean, I, people were like up our asses, like you got to, it, it was pretty odd. Nobody had to say anything. It's like, you're coming off this massive record. Of course, you, you want to continue that success. I mean, you know, I was always pretty realistic. I mean, I think, I didn't really think we were going to be able to repeat that success. It was just such a... Nobody, we never dreamed that we would have as much success as we did. And uh, Turn It Upside Down, I think, sold like 2 million copies, which I would have never dreamed it would have sold that much to begin with. So obviously it was considered a big letdown after Kryptonite. But, you know, so, I mean, we really try not to put a lot of pressure on ourselves, to be honest with you. I mean, my memories of, of making Turn It Upside Down were pretty good. Chris had, had bought a house out, of, like a farmhouse outside of Seattle. We went out there and spent some time. We did some writing sessions and demos. And um, we recorded the record here in New York City at a studio called Clinton Studios. And uh, we worked with Peter Denneberg and Frank LaRocca again. And it was, we had a good time, you know. And I, I think I liked the record too. I mean, it was sort of half and half, so like new, brand new songs. And we had going back and taking some of the songs that didn't make the first record from the early days. And you know, I think kind of naively we we chose the wrong single, you know, Cleopatra's Cat, which I love Cleopatra's Cat. And it's Great really tune. like a, a class in Dr. Saul. And it always, it's funny because it always got this incredible response. Remember when we do it as an encore a lot on our big tour the year before and people would like flab and it was, it got its tremendous response live. And I think, I don't know why we, we thought that it was going to, it would be a good single. <laughs> and uh, in hindsight, it wasn't. I think we probably should have gone with something like you let your heart go do fast, which, which did pretty well, but it was the second single and it was after Cleopatra bombed. So you should have gone with something like that first, but whatever, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think it's a really good record. That's the main thing. And, um, and, uh, yeah, something all this for me wrote was just sort of like, uh, I'm glad we did it. It was an afterthought to record it that day and it, it just came out great. Awesome. 
Well, I'm going to jump back to 2005's Nice Talking to Me for the song to follow that up with. And I'm going to go with what I think might be the band's most infectious pop song. Because this one is not funky, but there's just something about it that to me is perfect pop rock radio. And that is Margarita. You guys play it consistently in all your live shows. And there's a reason for that. Everybody knows all the words. To me, that is the Spin Doctors pop rock at its finest. And I felt like I'd be doing this mixtape a disservice if we didn't talk about this amazing track. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought it up because I love that song. It's one of my favorite Spin Doctors songs. We do play it regularly live because it's just it's just a great, a great pop song. Rock, you know, um, I love it. It's one of my favorites. And, it, you know, that that's a song that I think, you know, had it been the right place and the right time could have been a hit song. You know, it just wasn't, Again, that record, um, sadly, the record company folded shortly after it came out. And it, so it never really got to see the light of day. But it's a, I agree with you. It's a great song. So to follow that up, since I think we both agree that that's a, it's one of, our, one of our best sort of pop songs, I'm going to go ahead and follow it up with our biggest pop song, which is Two Princes. There you you go. got to put it on, you know? Lot, of course. And I got to say, just a lot of people might think, oh, you must be sick of playing that song or like, you know, whatever. But to me, it's... I'm so grateful for that song because it's kept us going all these years. And, and the other thing I'm really happy about is the song, you know, it, to this day gets so much airplay and it's, it's still all over the place. And I hear it all the time. I'll be walking through a store or whatever. It'll come on somewhere. And it, I got to say, I'm so glad it sounds fucking great. And I always just sort of kind of like take a deep breath and say, shoot. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, some songs are their hits, they, they might sound okay, but like it just, Two Princes just sounds really good. I love the drum sounds on them. You know, everybody in the band just sounds phenomenal. It's, it's, it's just all the stars really aligned. But I think like to have a hit song, it's like, there's a lot of things. There's plenty of songs that have been written that deserve to be, you know, hit songs. But there's just a lot of factors involved. You know, a lot of it's timing, the right song at the right time. And a lot of it's like, getting the right version of a song, you know, mm -hmm. and sometimes, you know, you might not hit the mark. You might have a great song. And you just never get the right version. There's so many factors, finding the right tempo, the right combination parts, uh, the sonic, whatever the sonic quality of the track is. And everything just came together on that track. You know, we, we found the right tempo. Everybody played some good. There's a real distinctive sound quality to the song. And, um, so I'm, I'm like eternally grateful to that. Well, I have a story about that song because about 10 years ago, I went to the Black Potato Music Festival, which is a festival that takes place in Hunterdon County, New Jersey, which is where I am from. And Chris was doing a solo show. And I ran into him right. in the street prior to the show and we were chatting. And he says, yeah, I have this, uh, this guitarist here is going to sit in with me for the night. And Eric walks up. So it was Eric and Chris doing an acoustic set. And when they played Two Princes, he says, I will forever, every day, be thankful for this song. And to me, that's yeah. something where I don't understand how a, a band can almost turn on a song that is so beloved by so many people. And plus, I mean, for Christ's sake, the band got to play it on Sesame Street. I mean, the song was so big, Elmo wanted a part of it. I mean, like kids. Yeah fell in love with that song that that shows that the song has a a timeless quality to it yeah no, it's, we're all very grateful and like you said some people have a love-hate relationship with their big hits you know and I, 
I never really understood that because it's like, if you have a couple of hit songs, even one hit, one or two hit songs, I mean, that, listen, you can, you can have a whole career on that, you know? And, um, at the same time, you know, you know, you followed us. I mean, we're, we take our, ourselves, our musicianship seriously. If we weren't, in my opinion, sounding as good or better than ever, we wouldn't be out there doing it. It's not just about collecting a check for us. It's gotta be, I mean, I know for myself, if I didn't feel like the band was really sounding great, I wouldn't want to go out and do it, you know? And so I do feel like that. But, you know, I, I also acknowledge that, like, if we didn't have those hit songs, and especially Two Princes, we wouldn't have 40 gigs this year. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it, really, it really carries us. And people, people like yourself know that there's a whole lot more to us than Little Miss and Two Princes. But a lot of the people that come see us, they're coming for that. And then mm-hmm. they see us, they're like, wow, these guys have a lot more to offer. So, you know, it, it's, uh, I think it's, it's you yeah, know, we're, we're very grateful. Well, for my last pick of the night, because we each have one left, I'm going to go with a song that you frequently use to close out a lot of shows, especially recently. And this is a song that has never had a studio version. However, on three of my Spin Doctors live albums, 1991's Up For Grabs and 1992's Home Belly Groove, it's the same version on each of those. And then 2015's Songs From The Road, Yo Mama's A Pajama And She Ain't No Good, True classic live funky spin doctors. I'm going to ask the same question I asked about Yo Baby. Is there a studio version that's sitting in the vault somewhere? Will there ever be a studio version of this? Or was this just meant to be a song for the stage? You know, I don't think we ever recorded that in the studio. And we, I think it just, maybe we will. I think we've talked about it before, but. It might just be meant for the stage, you know, and it's, uh, it's just because it's always a little bit different. The ending is like, just, especially you should hear it now. I mean, you should hear what we're doing with it now at the ending. It's like, it's gone full blown. Like it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's just one of these songs that changes all the time. It goes through as different periods of the band, different things happen on it, you know? And, uh, which version are you going to play? The one from, uh, Home Belly Groove? Yeah, I'm going to go with the version from Home Belly Groove. It's just the classic track, the classic nature of those early shows that really stands the test of time for me. Totally. And, you know, that's another song. We never sat in a room and wrote that. That was strictly just something that happened on the stage. I remember I kind of, I think if my memory serves me right, the first time we ever did any incarnation of that was at Mondo Periso. And I, th- I, I kind of vaguely remember Eric just doing that, nah, 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 you know, and like, us just going into some kind of funk move and Chris just riffing and, you know, it's slowly over time found an arrangement and is what it is, but it's, it's a real classic Spin Doctor song, you know, like, it's, you know, what time is it was the same way, yep. you know, we have these songs we never really ever rehearsed or really even wrote in the traditional sense. It was just jamming on stage and sort of over the course of maybe 10 or 20 gigs eventually found its arrangement and your mama is that. So now we have to, this, so do I have the last pick of the whole thing? Yeah. Close this out the whole night. What song are you going to go with? That's deep. Well, you know what? I think I'm going to go with a song, another song of Home Mother Groove. And this song was actually cut at the sound check. And that's Rosetta Stone. Nice. I think that'll be a nice way to end it. You know, a nice, nice ballad. It's an early Spin Doctor song. Another song we really don't play that often. We maybe played it a few times in the last decade. We, we should bring it back. It's a great song. And that was, we did that. That was our sound check at the uh, Wetlands for the uh, live, at the Wetlands for the Home of the Groups. 
let's close it out with that one. All right. And there you have it, folks. Side B of the ultimate Spin Doctors mixtape, which kicked off with Jimmy Olsen's Blues, Sweetest Portion, About a Train, Working for the Man, Here Comes the Bride, Someday All This Will Be Road, Margarita, Two Princes, Yo Mama's a Pajama Live, and Rosetta Stone Live. Remember, you can head to myweeklymixtape.com to hear all the songs we've discussed in this mix through the playlist embedded on the episode page. Now, Aaron, over the last year and change, you mentioned this earlier, we touched on it, so now I'm going to put on my reporter hat and try to fish and get some information out of you. The band's been playing some new tunes such as Rock and Roll Heaven, Double Parked, Still a Gorilla, and Boombox, the latter being a song that Shannon, one of the My Weekly Mixtape listeners and a good friend of mine, chimed in with as the track she'd kick off her Spin Doctors mixtape with. But with all that being said, these songs aren't commercially available, so we couldn't include them tonight on our Ultimate Spin Doctors mixtape. When will these songs be seeing the light of day? And is there any new Spin Doctors album information you could share with the listeners tonight? Yeah, so the record is done and it is mixed and we're going to get it mastered soon. And without giving too much information, we it looks like we have a deal that we're going to be doing. And so we're hoping that the record will come out. I mean, I think it's probably a little premature to say late this year, but I think definitely early next year. Certainly next year, hopefully the first part of the year, the new record will be coming out. And it's, it's a, we're really proud of it. I think it's a really strong Spin Doctors record. And like you said, we've been doing a lot of the material live and it's been going over really well. And uh, we're excited to get it out there. Now, Chris did say on stage through some of the live recordings I've heard that the album is called Rock and Roll Heaven. Is that something that we're not supposed to say yet or is that subject to change? I didn't say that. And we we actually, we, we, that was the working title, but we've decided to call the record Boombox. All right. So the record is going to be called Boombox. You can tell your friend. Fantastic. I love it. I mean, it. They, that could change because the, the artwork's not done yet, but I think we're, <laughs> I think pretty, pretty much set on Boombox as the title. That's, I love it. I can't wait to hear it. And Aaron, I thank you so much for joining me tonight on my weekly mixtape. This has been an absolute blast. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, man. Remember, you can find my weekly mixtape on almost all the social media haunts at my Weekly Mixtape. You can also head to MyWeeklyMixtape.com to check out the full catalog of My Weekly Mixtape episodes. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, you can help me out by either telling a friend about the show, leaving a five-star review wherever you're tuning in, or becoming a Patreon mixtaper at Patreon.com forward slash MyWeeklyMixtape. That's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, enjoy the tunes. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 